welcome listeners. It's another episode of Filmed in Canada. We're a podcast about Canadian movies. I'm William Lee, and joining me again is... Alexander Cairns. Good to have you back, Alexander. Hey. Yeah. What's happening? Uh, a lot of things. Um, care, to, care to no elaborate? No, no. Well, there's... Um, there's a film noir festival at the Cinematheque, which sounds exciting. Yeah. There's uh, probably other little... No Canadian. Canadian film noir. I, I think that's something... Uh, There's one, at least. That's, that's not... Skip Tracer. Oh. Are you going to check out Skip Tracer? Well, it's not playing, but I, I know that it exists, and it's a Canadian film noir. <laughs> ah. Yeah. How will we hunt that down? I think it's on YouTube. Okay. Speaking of obscure content, have you ever heard of Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin? No. I've never heard of any of, I've never heard of, any of, of our guests have. I've got it. some other people with us today. Okay, yeah. We are joined by uh, two guests today for our special podcast. Can I ask you guys to introduce yourselves? I'm Corbin Seligan. Filmmaker. Yes. You remember Metal Storm. I, I never saw it, but I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up then, and I remember... I remember when it was it's around the same time I think as Space Hunter Ventures in the Forbidden Zone in 3D yes. which is my first 3D film in the ah, theater cool which I think was actually shot in BC I'm pretty sure Space Hunter was shot here oh okay yeah yeah um, Metal Storm we're not going to talk about Metal Storm right. today on this podcast but it's coming out on Blu-ray which I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, <laughs> excited curious to revisit it because mm. uh, I just I remember the poster in, in the in the in the papers and stuff and just it just looked like this cool thing that yeah. uh, that my parents said I was not allowed to go see. So that was back when they made the posters that had no resemblance to the movie at all, but they sold the movie very well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Corbin, you've got um, uh, your own movie is uh, coming up at a festival. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I made a feature film. It's called Patterson's Wager. It's uh, about a man who can see two minutes into the future, and the man is played by Fred Owenick from Corner Gas. And uh, it's going to be playing at the uh, Indie Gathering in Ohio in a couple weeks and the Moonrise Film Festival. It's also out on iTunes and Amazon. So if anyone wants to check it out, you can just go to those places or go to www.pattersonswager.com and there's links on there as well. Cool. I haven't seen the movie, but I've heard about a Nicolas Cage movie. I think it's called Next. Yes. Is, is it? It's not at all. like <laughs> Not similar. No, no. Okay. It's kind of, I did the opposite where it's, it's very grounded. So there's no sort of uh, artificial uh, espionage plot or anything like that tacked on. It's just a normal guy who's afflicted with this weird, unpredictable ability. And yeah. it's just how, how would you deal with having this ability if it just kind of came upon you, but you still had to leave your... Um, live your normal everyday life. Okay. And there's a bunch of other stuff going on, but to say too much would ruin it. So yeah. So go rent it. Fair enough. Well, thanks for joining us, Corbin. Thank you. Yes. And also with us is Devin Scott, uh, also a filmmaker. Everyone who listens to the podcast regularly should already know that. Yeah, I was on here what three months ago. Yeah, that was fun. Good talked, times. Yeah, we talked about uh, oh right our films and like Vic Burger and uh, what's that guy name. Doc, dude. I'm actually blanking on it. Yeah. So I was thinking it's Alan King. Alan King. Alan King. Because I was thinking Alan Clark, but I didn't want to say Alan Clark. I, I was thinking like Norman McLaren. <laughs> because we're watching other yeah. stuff today. I watched A Married Couple and Warrendale. Cool. Well, thanks for coming back, Devin, and, um, and joining us. Today, we're going to watch some NFB animated shorts, um, which um, some people would say is the most well-known or most highly regarded Canadian export. From, from Canada's film industry. 
On the website, they say that the NFB is the largest organization, or sorry, it's, I'm saying it wrong. The NFB says that they are um, outside of the United States. Um, they are the organization that has the most Oscar nominations. And um, I won't fact check that right now. But I, I think, because uh, they have, um, they have a, a wide body of work that includes uh, animated shorts and documentaries. And have they done, has NFB produced uh, features as well? Anyone recall? I know that they're releasing a feature at some point this year. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but Anne-Marie Fleming has a new... Like narrative features or yeah, documentary? Yeah, oh. an animated feature coming out this year. I know they often provide finishing funds to like uh, even narrative films. A lot of experimental stuff. Yeah, like sort of in that vein. Yeah, not yeah. sort of traditional narratives, narrative stuff, but yeah, experimental. And yeah. Okay. Yeah, the San Marie Fleming one, I, I had read about it, like Alan Page does one of the voices, and like, so it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a, one of the more higher profile things I think they've done, but I don't know too much about it at this point. All right. you, you could argue that every film is narrative. Uh. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> could. On that note. <laughs> you could, they're all linear, so they yeah. have, to have to have a beginning and an end, otherwise they would never end. Exactly. We're we're gonna watch uh, NFB Anime Shorts from their website, streaming from their website, which is uh, www.nfb.ca, and uh, you could f you can find a lot of their content available actually, for free. They're actually pretty hip on the um, the new technology scene too. They've got apps and Apple TV apps and stuff too. So cool. All right. Alright, so um, we are uh, we're just going to take a turn choosing one of the shorts, and then we will watch it together and comment afterwards. So I invite listeners to uh, also watch along with us. Uh, pause the pause the uh, the episode and, and watch the show with us, and then and then hear us talk about it. Uh, we won't record comments during the podcast because um, um, I don't abide um, talking during movies. So. <laughs> And we're not, so we're not actually, we're not recording like a commentary. I'm, I want to differentiate. Commentaries for, for movies are different from talking over a movie. And with that, I guess, um, does anyone have any strong feelings about a first choice? As long as it's NFB. No? Okay. So Alexander, do you want to want to introduce the first short that we're going to talk about? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about a cherry tail, and that's chair like the thing that you sit on. Um, so if you're searching for it, it's spelled C-H-A-I-R-Y, and uh, it's directed by Claude Jutra and Norman McLaren from 1957. It's also got some music from Mr. Ravi Shankar, 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 I don't know, but it's really good. It's about a dude who can't sit on a chair. Right, it's definitely recording this time. What was that? I definitely hit the record button this time. So we're cool. back after watching A Cherry Tale. And nine minutes, roughly, of silence? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Make sure to add that in in post. <laughs> That was amusing, I thought. I, th I think it's more than amusing. I, th I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really love that.
yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's an actor combined with, um, um, I guess they would have stop animated a chair to with, with his with his footage and the person to some extent too. I mean, there was like there, there were quite a few points where the chair was like quite clearly being like tugged at by wires in real time. Yeah. But other points, I wish it was all log looked like frame by frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I loved it. That was great. Yeah. 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 Just before we stepped away to watch the short, I, I noted in the description it says it's animated by Evelyn Lambert. So I guess that's worth noting. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure who Evelyn is, but. Um, Presumably, she worked with Norman McLaren and Claude Jutra to make this short, and um, be interesting to see what else she's done. Yeah, yeah. Um, when when people are learning animation, um, the challenge is to add personality to something that is inanimate. And uh, I think with 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 drawn animation, there's there's a lot of stretching of of things like that, uh, of stretching of items to to get that across. And mm -hmm. you could you could animate the weight of a thing, but to actually do it with a physical object that uh, that you can't, I think that's very impressive. I was I was that, that you can't manipulate the yeah. object itself. You can only manipulate its placement within yeah. the frame. Yeah, 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 the way it moves. Uh, I was sold on the chair being alive when it. Um, when it ran across the screen and and kind of had it, it, it went up on two legs because it just stopped yeah. itself. Yeah. I like how the chair is progressively humanized. You know, it starts and you, know, you think I think like, oh no, it's like a demonic, possessed object. But at the end, you know, like it's it's a it's a it's a human being with needs, yeah. or at least well, a, know, at I, least like I, an angry cat. Like it's it's almost more of a like a symbol in a way because it's kind of like this like it start like you say it kind of just starts out as it's just a chair. You don't know you don't know what message is being communicated by the fact that this guy can't sit on this chair but as it progressive it, it becomes uh, like a spiritual statement in a way I feel like I, I don't really know much about any particular religion but I just feel like I can confidently say that this is like spiritual in some sense and it or, or at least it's communicating some some philosophical ideas that aren't immediately present and just you know this guy's trying to sit on a chair and he can't um, because it's kind of like he's it's just assumed that this object is there for his use but he but by the end of it he has to come to accept the fact that no he has to appreciate the object's existence and only by allowing the chair to sit on him is he able to sit on the chair so there has to be it it's, it, it, it it creates an equity between the two objects and so if you were to replace the chair with with a human being or something of more weight or importance, um, that philosophical message might be might be more clear. I guess. Yeah, I sort of gotten the idea. It's maybe about like it's what empathy between all things. Yeah. You know, mutual understanding. The chair understands the guy. The guy understands the chair. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's, it's kind of touching. And it is a man. I think that's interesting and important too. That it's a male trying to sit because it, it would be. I think. A totally different film that was a female okay in what sense well I mean I I mean I saw it more as just sort of a relationship metaphor mm -hmm. too um, just you've got this guy just assuming um, and it also it, it it's set up as the traditional sort of pursuit thing where the man after after he, he just wants the chair and then he pursues it and then he decides well I don't want you anymore and then the chair becomes more interested in him yeah, which I thought was was interesting. It's, and then he's like, "No, no, I still don't want it." And then, as as the more he rejected the chair at that point, the chair seemed to be, "No, come on, like we still." But then it 
it was and then it went beyond that where it wasn't okay the chair once they kind of achieve this something this sort of balance the chair wasn't then just going to submit to the man and the man then had to, and then there was more going on there but i thought that was yeah i thought that was interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's definitely kind of like a like a, you know this this like a, what's the word uh like masculinity um so where you feel like your entitlement it's in the ma- this masculine yeah, entitlement exactly. going on at the beginning yeah that kind of gets undermined mm-hmm. mm. it's fun i like to also there'll never be there'll never be a film that isn't improved by ravi shankar's music yeah that was incredible like the uh especially the, in the midsection when it's just like when they're running across the screen back and the music's just this like staccato like yeah it was all it was all like rhythmically tied to the movements of of the the guy and the the chair throughout yeah it's very refined mickey mousing i would call it (laughs) Uh, do you all know what mickey mousing is no um it's when uh, i think uh, i learned this at sfu (laughs) that when uh basically um it's when on-screen music is tied to like action in a very like literal way so like you know mickey mousing is like you know mickey mouse punches someone or like it's hit on the head and you hear like a gong sound in the soundtrack Mm. so or like you know when someone's walking here like Doop, 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 in, in, in the score, you know, it's Mickey Mousing. Cool. It's had a lot of that. Interesting, too. It's directed by two men, too. Directed by two men, animated by a woman. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing. I'm not sure why it took two men to direct that. Maybe one directed the chair, one directed the actor. <laughs> or Jutra just wanted to take credit for it or something. Right. I don't know. Because <laughs> I, I feel like, cause like he, he was mostly doing narrative features. Mm. Whereas McLaren was doing animated shorts, so I, yeah, I don't know. Be curious to know how that collaboration came to be. Do you know if Claude Jutra made any other, or was involved in any other animated movies? Not that I'm aware. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can look that up. But certainly, uh, Norm, Norm McLaren has uh, a long history with animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's let's move on to another short. Um, Devin, do you want to? Do you have? Do you have a? a short in mind that you wanted us to watch together? Uh, I would love to see The Cat Came Back. All right. It's okay. it it actually, uh, I remember, it was one of the first films I ever, like, animated films I ever saw that actually scared me. Yeah. I thought, I found it existentially terrifying. Okay, I'll say this. It's, I, this is probably the most famous in a short, I think. Yeah. Um, Cordell Barker, is, uh, doesn't he have his own animation studio? Uh, did he... Uh, the, the name just the the name sticks out for me because I think he um, he remains like a prominent uh, figure in, in animation world, right? I think I may or may not have screened a film in the same program as him last year. I'm just going to see if he did if I was a god. Sorry, did you just say are you are you asking if you yourself are a god? Oh no, he, he did. Yeah, he did. He did the film if I was a god, which oh, okay. I actually screened with at VIF last year. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like in the same shorts program. Yeah, Lifeguard and that played I think back to back. Which was hit. Um, if I was a god, it's Would the animated film about the uh, kid at school who like has fantasies about, you know, being a god. All right. So we're going to uh, the cat came back from 1988, and we're going to pause the recording for seven minutes. Won a genie award. <laughs> what the hell is that? Good golly! It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> they don't exist anymore. No, they combined them all, haven't they? To the Gemini or the Junos? Or well, I think they've combined it now. It's it's Canadian Film and Television Awards. So they. Oh yeah. It's all together, because Canadians can't handle two award shows not to watch. They have to make one that no one would watch. I watched it once. <laughs> <laughs>
song the cat came back was written for the short or if, if the short was based on the song i was wondering that too yeah, it says in the description it's based on a folk song based on a folk okay. song okay yeah. i think this version was uh like i think uh, there's a lot of differences between this and the original folk song i think uh, okay. this folk song's a lot simpler <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do remember um hearing the song sung a lot by fred penner on fred mm-hmm. penner's place yeah the flip is that he was the host of a, like a show for kids that would run in the time slot adjacent to the Friendly Giant. This is Devin. This film scared me as a kid, and it still scares me. It's heavy. I find one of the scariest things to me is, is like the idea of like the universe just arbitrarily cursing you for like <laughs> minor infractions. And uh, well, it's not really established that he's done anything. To, to deserve it. Well, he, he has to throw the cat out, you know, when, when the cat, oh, like... okay, yeah, 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 I think that's his, like, you know, that's his, like, fatal flaw, right? If he yeah. tosses the cat well, out. Well, really so. I'm a cat person, so I think. <laughs> I agree that he has done something against the universe. Uh, that's the thing. He deserves like, to be haunted by the ghosts <laughs> of nine cats. <laughs> and the cat, For all you know, eternity. He literally can't get away from it, you know, like, like no matter what he does. And that's, that's scary to me, you know, like, this lack of agency in your own life. And then even in death. Even in death, it follows him for eternity. It's like, yeah. oh, it give me nightmares. Kind of like the opposite <laughs> of a cherry tale. <laughs> like, you, rather than rather continuing than. to resist something, embrace it, and it works out. Whereas this guy continues to resist it, tries to blow it up, and then dies, and still gets haunted by it. <laughs> Nine of it. <laughs> what is it trying to say about disposable relationships in in that respect, with your pets or with or with other people in your life, in, in your life, because uh, I was—I I forgot about the part where, where he gets on the uh, the rail, railroad cart and and goes up the mountain. <laughs> he encounters like a lot of women tied to rail tracks. <laughs> Very weird. Yeah. Maybe it's a metaphor for spousal abuse. Actually, I think this is <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, the metaphor is pretty, pretty clear in there. <laughs> I think this is actually my this this short might have been my first exposure to that trope of the ladies tied to railroad okay, tracks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Actually, which you know I don't know why I just accepted it. <laughs> it's like and, and then there's a cow too, which <laughs> yeah, and he's able to navigate all of all of the women and cows except the one little ladybug is yeah. what derails him. Splits in half. Yeah, I was yeah. that's true. Like that that detail of cutting back to the ladybug as it splits in half is it's morbid I know well it's like when you see the, the bat hit the window and then the window shatters <laughs> weird little yeah so, and everything in the universe has a, like this is a crappy universe this guy lives in I would mm-hmm. not going to be in this world There's way too many hills yeah <laughs> and like everything wants to kill him yeah. and, like, even the fish <laughs> and that bat was tenacious bat yeah Wait a minute, did he die in the ocean? Maybe. Does he have more than one life? I I don't know if I got that from it, but he cast a black and then he's just walking home and he was drowning. He was blue by the time. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe the rest was a dream, but even then it was pretty dreamy up until that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was honestly like oh, I can't get over how like 
truly terrifying. That short is. I don't know. How old were you when you saw it the first time? I was probably like five, and I've seen it probably. Like oh, okay. I've seen it at least half a dozen times since then, yeah. and like every time, like I even I watched it like last time, probably a year or two ago, and like even then I found it like it gave me nightmares. Yeah. It was just like something in my childhood that it like triggered. Yeah. You know? The animation style, do you think that contributes to it as well? Because it, it's... Uh, it's grotesque. Yeah, because everything is, is constantly kind of um, moving, right? It's little gyrations or something constantly. It's almost this fisheye effect where everything, anything comes close to the, the lens, in quotes, which isn't a lens. Everything becomes big and buggy, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, but yeah, the way that things are waving, it's kind of like Don Hertzfeld in that regard. Yeah. And, and his, like, it's, I mean, his shorts are very unsettling in the same in a similar way too yeah this is the, this is the only kind because of, this is Corbin again I have to mention I'm a cat person but I also one of my big things with films is animals and jeopardy in films mm. I hate watching live action stuff like Andre Rublev considered one of the greatest films ever I'll never see it because of the stuff that happens to the horse and the cow in it and this is so. Do the, you, is there a website where you can like vet that before seeing a movie? So you I'm sure there is actually. There, so you know, there you're probably not is. Going to like see I just watched the, this show, um, the, the interview. I think it's what it's called. Yeah, the interview. It's it's a, a feature that came out this year, and it starts and this guy hits a coyote right at the beginning with his car. Like, like I don't know, like two like, minutes this in. This isn't the North Korea one, is it? No, no, no. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's it's American. Oh, okay. um, I feel like there is some animal murder in, yeah. in the Seth Rogen one. Too, yeah, so. and I was just so I was so ready because then he has to. It's like that that thing where you have to kill the animal once they, that you see that yeah. all the time yeah, in movies. Yeah, yeah. And I was just all, I I turn it off and I said I don't know. And I find out okay, fine, I'll watch it. But I just I just hate that as a shortcut. Yeah, to character stuff like to, to show someone a character have them abuse an animal or not or yeah. something like that or have an animal so this this is sort of the only type of animal in jeopardy thing i could handle like i can <laughs> handle this this one was fine like when he takes the puts the cat in the bag and takes it out like in another movie in a live action movie yeah even though there's not a real cat in the bag i can't like it took me forever to watch well, gum, I, think, Gummo. I think it's i think it's established that you know it's they're in they're in a battle with each other yeah. and so like it's not it's not that the that the cat is helpless and it's exactly. just being murdered for no yeah. reason or whatever. Like, they're the cat's the aggressor. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so I could, I could handle this one. So, <laughs> yeah. but I was definitely on the side of the cat in this movie. Have you I'd, seen John Wick? Yes. Oh, <laughs> See, all that, those all those guys got what was coming to them. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. But yeah. No. That. But I feel like that is one movie where like the animal murder is like provides the proper motivation yep. and like oh. it definitely it's all kicks off need. and everything and then like when he walks away with the pit bull at the end it's so good yeah no i agree yeah what i'm curious so who was on whose side of you, of you guys like what i like i was on the cat side for sure yeah no oh. it's hard to take sides Devin movie. seems like he was kind of on the side of the of the guy i, I don't think i'm on anyone i like the guy's despicable obviously i mean he's so grotesque but <laughs> but like uh, it's it's more like uh, I'm on my own side, you know. I, what, what's scary about that film is what it says about me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the first time I watched it, I was on the guy's side because I, I I think just because the song talks about wanting to get rid of the cat, but not having control over the cat. But on this viewing, I I can understand why he was so offended by the cat because it swatted at his rattle, dude. Yeah, it, that that seems to be the origin of their animosity. Yeah. Is <laughs> I wonder if he hadn't have tossed the cat out. Would the cat still have fucked his life up? I don't know. That's that's what's so scary. Cause like like the thing is like it leaves it ambiguous. Was 
you know, w- was it his original sin that cost him everything, yeah. or was it just he, he was anointed by the universe? No, you're gonna. Well, be you can tell out. he's already a dick beforehand because yeah. he's like what? pissed off that someone's even just ringing at his doorbell. But yeah. then the minute he sees the cat, he's into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He so that you know, it's like, oh yeah, gives him an opportunity to change, but then he doesn't. Yeah. No. <laughs> truly, like truly disturbing. <laughs> okay. Well, let's uh, let's select another short. Uh, Corbin, have, did you have something pre-selected? Or uh, well, Begone Del Care is probably the only one I know, and I like it, so okay. let's right. check that one out. Okay, Begone Del Care, Evelyn Lambert and Norman McLaren again. Ooh. Okay, so I'm from 1949. Uh, Corbin, when did you first see this? Uh, at Simon Fraser University, I think. I saw, Well, because I work there. I'm in charge of all the film equipment. That's where I met Devin. And uh, I think it's somebody came in one of the um, profs, and now it's kind of become a staple. I know they showed it in the first year film program for a while because they, they make experimental films in the first year. So this is a good. We actually had to kind of make ripoffs of this because they, they told us to like, hey, here's a film strip, paint on it. Yep. <laughs> you know, and like, and I, I like uh, I like hammered mine. <laughs> so that's my that's my Beyond Dark Care yeah, story. This is kind of the the height of I think what you can do. I'm sure they can do more than this, but just to show me you can do scratching and painting on film, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Wellesby, who was um, my first year professor at SFU, uh, he he was the first person who introduced us the idea of like every film is a narrative. He would say, uh, you know, because it you know it has to have a beginning, it has to have an end. Even one frame is a narrative. <laughs> and he used this as an example. Yeah. You know, I thought, okay, it's extraordinary. It's it's just fantastic. Um, I guess uh, like Oscar Peterson Trio would have recorded music after the, the footage was edited together, I would assume. Okay. So they must have been editing to it. I think yeah, the it opposite, sounds like yeah. they edited to it, yeah. Huh. And they probably just broke it down, and I'm sure they just broke it down into beats, because I mean, when yeah. you're doing this kind of stuff and you're actually animating per frame, you have to know exactly, okay, we, this beat hits at this 24 frames, this note's on for two frames, and so, yeah, I think that's... Cause it, yeah, this is not the kind of thing you just wing this kind of movie. You, I mean, it take, the kind of planning it takes to to work out when you're doing actually scratching on film and like that that sequence and sort of three quarters of the way through the kind of the quiet where you just have the little scratches and the little dots appearing. It's just mm-hmm. it's just gorgeous. Why did we got so smooth? Because like the dots, like I mean, if you like actually like scratch film by film, like I wonder what process they used to make it actually look like the dots were slot moving across the screen. And yeah, things. yeah. Or especially in that sequence when there's like five different things overlaying. Yeah, and, like yeah. I thought, like was there optical printing or like uh, re-photography going on to get those layers, or did they actually just like find a way to get all that into one? Strip of film is, is incredible. I know that there's a big. I mean, you can look at. I haven't seen it. I've done all the research, but there's a big. He had a big rig. The way he had his. He had a very specific way of working, yeah. sort of laid out. But yeah, no, it's. I don't know where at what stage of his animation this was done. This is one of his first ones, or who was sort of near the end. But he, I mean, there's so much 
mean, there's yeah. so many different techniques that it's play so well in developed. this too. Yeah. yeah. It made me think of like in iTunes or or, or like a, a screensaver, you have like the music visualizers where it's just mm. like the waves and everything bump, bump, bouncing around the screen. Obviously, that would still be complicated to do as well because you'd need to write an algorithm to, to kind of match and like assign colors to different frequencies or I don't know specifically what the algorithm would be based on but um, at least with a computer you can analyze an audio file and see where the where the where the transients are so you can see where the rhythm is and because yeah. you, you can see like especially if there's a drum beat you can see where yeah, you see that least, waveform you see yeah. that peak and you match yeah. it up yeah, yeah. so yeah, those- so it would be much easier to to match the visual to to the rhythm Whereas this, like like you said, like having to go frame by frame, and like I would imagine they're just looping like six seconds of it over and over again to really get the the, the rhythm of it. I, I, I don't know, yeah. but it would be very challenging. Yeah, yeah. The, the, those types of things that you see in your uh, your iTunes visualizers and whatever, they the the patterns after a while they become so predictable and regular that if you if you if you watch five seconds of it, you know what five minutes of it is. Right. And and with this one, it's. Just the the style of uh, of the abstraction changes so quickly. Yeah, uh, I just I love that it feels random. It feels like um, like a film strip has just like gone crazy and is just uh, reacting to music. The gremlins in the in the projection booth. <laughs> <laughs> it's gremlins too. Uh, gremlins. Too. Like they're in the it's just gremlins in the projection booth. Yeah, I know, I know my gremlins mythology. Okay, <laughs> all right, <laughs> just check it. Anyway. But um, what's the subtitle of Gremlins too? <laughs> um, I know the I know. batch. The new batch. batch. The, the new batch. batch. <laughs> I, I, I just I've never seen either Gremlins film. Oh man, yeah. Gremlins two is remarkable. <laughs> yeah, um, and Trump was supposed to be in it. What? It was supposed to be. Well, that was supposed to be Trump. Didn't they actually try to get him in it? Or uh, I don't know. I listened to an was, interview. Was, I listened to an interview with um, what's his name recently. You know, it was on WTF. Yeah, yeah, Joe Dante. Yeah, Did he didn't, he didn't mention anything one? about specifically trying to get Trump. But yeah, it was supposed to, wow. supposed to represent Trump. represent Trump. Was he going to play one of the Gremlins? <laughs> no, in the second one, it, it's, it takes place in this in this like Nakatomi Plaza type tower, and and the guy who's like a real estate developer. Um, but it, I think he said in that interview that he like they tried to turn him in, or they created him as Trump initially, but then he became so likable yeah. because the actor was John just Glover like, just decided him, which he normally isn't that way. Yeah, and this is the one where he decided to be a nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> so he starts off as the evil real estate developer, but by the end he's like just having fun with the gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the way that our conversations just go on different tangents is but, very much like this. <laughs> yeah, but what I can draw back is what's interesting because Gremlins 2, done sort of in the analog era, yeah. so all the effects in that are practical. Yeah. And you look at this, Beyond Del Care, you know, done in the analog era, and mm-hmm. you think of just, I mean, just, the, yeah, the amount of work it would take to do this, where even, even it's something as simple as seeing a waveform now where you could match, even if you're animating something um, by hand, you could even have a waveform that you could actually see, but back then they couldn't do that. Uh, you would have had an oscilloscope, probably. Right. Yeah. So they, they would have been able to visualize waveforms. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering. But you would have like fashion. you don't have that laid out. Can they could they print that out? Like I wonder how they. Yeah. Would. It's much. Well, less, you could probably yeah. do something like like with like a polygraph where like right. where the needle would bounce around. I would think you would be able. There would have been some method mm-hmm. of capturing a waveform back then. Or they could probably maybe, maybe they yeah. got the sheet yeah. music. Maybe they got the sheet music mm-hmm. and they animated to the sheet music because they could see. I don't know. But it's just just thinking about all the stuff we take for granted now, 
which back then would take so much more time yeah. because you sit down. I mean, I don't know how long this thing would have taken to make, but it's, it's, it's that thing where in the old days people were willing to take, to take you know, a year to animate something like this. I'm not saying it took a year, I don't know, but it would take a long time to do something like this, I would think. What I find interesting are like the animators who, when, you know, when they switch to digital, um, uh, use the freedom to just go huge. Like, uh, World of Tomorrow is interesting because that's uh, uh, Don Hertzfeld, and he um, he kind of took the opportunity. Like, he, he'd worked on 35 mil, like, in 60 mil his whole life, and never had never done a digital effect in his life, and then suddenly decided to do randomly a film on, you know, using entirely digital means, and he just used it as, like, it's huge. The scale of the thing is massive, and it's one guy doing it. Yeah. So, like, uh, I, th I think almost you can channel your efforts in a different way these days, maybe, but a lot of people don't take advantage of that and things just look lazy, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to tie it to the digital animation, um, you've all seen Ratatouille? Mm -hmm. um, yep, right. You know that when, uh, when, the, when the main character, he samples um, cheeses or whatever, he, he's trying to describe the flavor, and then there's like a little balloon that that uh, shows up behind his, uh, beside his head, where there's like there's just an abstraction of uh, like colors flaring. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. But that was actually based off an experimental an experimental animator's style. I forget who it was though. Oh, okay. um, I should Google that. Yeah, but that reminded me. I, I like I really appreciated those moments in, in Ratatouille where they were trying to visually convey taste. Uh, I thought because that would be so hard to do, but. They tried it, and I appreciate that. And here's something where uh, 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 filmmakers are trying to visualize sound and music, mm -hmm. and and I, I think uh, it's it just really taps into something um, that's that's deeper in the imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Um, What's next? What is next? Um, Okay, we're going to uh, 2004 for Ryan, directed by Chris Landreth. Um, it's, uh, it uses computer animation, and it, um, it, it tells the life a little bit of Ryan Larkin, who is uh, actually uh, uh, an animator who worked for the NFB. Viewer discretion is advised. Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm here to explain some things. All right. Oh, okay. All right, so that was Ryan, also nominated for an Oscar in 2004. I think the Could CG... Did you win? I believe it uh, was also the winner. Yes, thank you. I think the CG played better in 2004 than it does in 2016. I disagree. You disagree? Yeah, no, I disagree too. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, it's I abstain. <laughs> <laughs> no. Are you um, with us or them, Alex? <laughs> the disagrees have already won. <laughs> Throw your vote away. Yeah. Um, I have mixed feelings about it because I think it. Uh, I think this uh, short is straddling. Um, being uh, that is, I, th I think it's it's not entirely decided whether it is strictly a documentary biography or a CGI demo reel. I think it's coming from a genuine place, but I think it's an instance where perhaps the tools that the animator uses 
are, um, um, they maybe go too far. They maybe um, are not the best medium to express what he wants to express. Or maybe I should elaborate. Okay. Yeah, oh, that's, okay. but that's interesting. You kind of... Okay. Yeah, you, that's, a, that's an interesting response, though. Okay. Please, yes, please elaborate. I like that we, I like that we see a lot of uh, Ryan Larkin's uh, animation. I like the moment where, we use, where, uh, where um, the filmmaker uses um, uh, up-to-date tools to replicate the effect of, uh, of those original animations. Um, like uh, uh, toward the end, they're walking on the street, but a lot of the a lot of the people, a lot of the street people, not street people, a lot of the characters that are just walking on the street, they're in the style of uh, of um, his, uh, his his sketches from walking. What I have, I, I think, what I respond um, not so positively to is the interview segments that are in. Uh, it looks like a, like a, the cafeteria of a. Um, a soup kitchen space. Uh, when when Ryan is talking and he's like losing his temper, and there's like a lot of a lot of stuff happening uh, um, around him. Uh, his his head his head is exploding, and there's like, and then there's like weird hands coming out of different objects, including uh, the interviewer Chris, um, who's also got things sticking out of his head. I, th I find that distracting, and I find and and I guess when I when I see Ryan losing his temper, and that material is just used as fodder for animation. I, I think it just crosses the line. I think kind of what, what I what I liked about the film is that how much it kind of lives in the uncanny valley. Um, are you too familiar with the idea of the uncanny valley? Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of for any listeners, it's the idea that uh, the closer something comes to resembling realism, uh, if it doesn't quite get there to full for realism, it falls in this valley of basically like it, it feels uncanny it, it's almost grotesque i'm talking about the final fantasy the spirits within effect <laughs> um the um don't get the reference oh it's the first final fantasy film it was, it was kind of a, it was a big kind of big budget attempt to kind of get photorealism done in cgi and this was like in 2002 well, polar express was mm -hmm. that was Criticized oh, for being the uncanny valley beowulf yeah. too yeah yeah and uh, i think this film uses it to its advantage where all the characters are these like, like like they have these kind of like realistic looking skin textures, but and they move. And you like, see their you see their muscles and. That's the thing I like how. Bones. That's the thing I like how um basically like, the grotesquery of the characters is directly related to, you know how mentally frayed they are basically where it, they've he's they've turned like the characters' exterior into just a pure expression of their interior lives, and. I think the film isn't necessarily, it's a bit messy in how it does it, but I really like the idea, especially in Ryan's design when like, you know, like instantly, like when you see like his, his he's basically literally skin and bones in like the most literal way ever. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see how much like, how little of him there is left. And I think for me, just like seeing that was, really got across the tragedy of the whole thing. And you what, see, and you, I guess you see the beginnings of that in in Chris's character yeah because it's like you know I lost this when I couldn't figure out my finances or whatever and then kind of that lays the road max so we can see that Ryan's lost a hell of a lot more mm -hmm. and then uh, when Ryan gets angry like uh, and he starts doing his thing like I can take or leave that but I think the, you know the, the basic design conceits of the film I'm really on board with um, especially with with kind of almost how it's age too where um, 
the the 2004 CGI, which feels like it's funny. Like when I, when I when I saw it, when I saw like 2004, I'm like, oh, like in the days of primitive CGI. And I'm like, no, that's when The Incredibles came out. You know, <laughs> that was a year after Finding Nemo. Those were you know, those were not those were not primitive days. And uh, seeing this kind of like low, relatively low budget compared to Pixar, like kind of awkward movements and everything, um, it kind of works for me in the context of it because it, it's a film about people who have you know become frayed and are kind of like moving away from being relatable humans. Uh, so yeah, I like, I like that. I like that part. Yeah. Corbin, you got some thoughts? Uh, I mean, this is the first time I've seen it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, I've, I've heard about it since it came out. I remember it was a big deal when it came out. I remember it even got like its own DVD release. We were a blockbuster. It was, it was sitting there. I never, I never watched it. And I guess this, this first viewing, I was certainly just, I was taken with the aesthetic of it. And that overwhelmed my, I guess my response to it on a uh, more thematic level. I was just really just visually, I thought it was really interesting. Um, but with your comment, William, it definitely, I can totally see where you're coming from, where there's a lot of, there's a lot of setup and not a lot of payoff. There's a lot of these kind of things are brought up and they, you're, you know what happened to his brother. Well, no, we don't know what happened to his brother. Are you going to tell us what happened to his brother? And there's a bunch of those where the interviews is sort of one line and that's it. And it's, it is sort of like he just, okay, I'm going to take this, I decided to record this one thing and I'm just going to animate that instead of really going into it. And so there is an element of, I don't know, I don't, I, uh, I'm hesitant to use the word exploitation, but it sort of seems a bit of that, especially because his reaction to the money when it's brought up. And then this is kind of what the filmmaker is doing too, to the guy. I don't know. It's. It's interesting. It's because it doesn't it doesn't go into a lot. It doesn't get really deep. Um, so that's kind of my sort of in line with my criticism of the film, yeah. which is structural, and that like it kind of starts going down a few alleys, but never really does, and it keeps mm-hmm. coming back to you know Ryan, and which was really interesting. But for example, the Barbara thing, when suddenly you know he talk, starts talking about how you know he lost Barbara, you know his who I assume is his wife or, or sister, because um, uh, they have the same last name. I mean. Chris's uh, the directors, um, and you know you see. Oh, for I, bro- I think it was was it his mother? Yeah, it was his mother. Oh, see that's that's the thing. <laughs> Where like uh, I'm not really. It's kind of a bit like, uh, you know, that's brought up, and and you go like, wait, what? It's never really connected to the Ryan storyline in in a way that I found meaningful or, you know, uh, intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film does that a few times where I feel like almost I was like this is either a 20 minute film or a 8 minute film and it's a 13 minute film so it's it's kind of uh, it goes down a lot of half alleys yeah. well it starts out with him um, with Chris introducing himself and uh, he reveals that he has um, uh, some history with um, mental illness yeah and then and then he says oh but wait it's the story about Ryan and I guess I guess it doesn't really feel like the story of Ryan. It, it feels like him, um, Chris, processing his own history and his memory of uh, of his mother Barbara, but yeah. uh, and and Ryan sort of um, uh, representing um, representing someone who, uh, who who is suffering the same thing as as his mother. So I, I think there's 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 the filmmaker saying he's making a film about Ryan, but um, he's he's. It's almost like he hasn't completed the film about his story and Barbara's story. 
that's the thing where neither story feels totally complete yeah. um, I also think just on a nuts and bolts level some of the editing and sound editing choices I, I found a bit bewildering mm-hmm. like some like the fades in it and fade in and out into the title cards I thought like it almost felt like um, it just felt messy the full, like the full stop cut to black mm-hmm. or like you know like for example what, there's a moment when the camera's like kind of like uh, hovering over Chris's face, and then like it's like he's halfway through a sentence, and it goes to a title card, and they like then he completes a sentence, and I thought like they're they're going for something here, but I uh, I don't think it's working, <laughs> you know. So uh, it felt a bit messy. Messy indeed. And, and I think like I, th- I think they were trying to make it intentionally messy, but I think there's a point in which you have to kind of structure your mess in an intuitive way uh, to get a proper mess going. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it, <laughs> it felt like, you know, an improper mess, I guess. Sometimes. I liked it on the whole. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I found it compelling and just for for nothing else, just that that bit, you know, the bit of the hand at the end when he's asking for change and, you know, it's 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 a We've seen that idea before, we're just that idea of, you know, we don't know who these people are, who we see, we don't know who anybody is, we don't know the ba- anybody's history, and I guess that's part of what the animation does, is it, it's showing you their history and the way they're animated, but we can't see people that way, mm-hmm. so I thought that, you know, it's, it's compelling. I mean, I was certainly, I was entertained, I was engaged, for sure, so okay. I'm, I'm glad I finally saw it. Well, I'm glad we talked about it. I, I don't, um, yeah, I don't totally dislike it. I just have uh, some problems with it. But it's, it certainly, I think it's trying to do something uh, different as well in, in telling those stories. Okay. Well, I think we're going to wrap up this uh, first volume of NFB Animated Shorts. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank our special guests again, uh, Corbin. Thank you. And Devin. Thank you. Uh, so I'm William, and uh, over there was. Whatever, man. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the whatever man and I will be back again talking about more Canadian movies. Uh, hope hope you guys will join us again sometime too. Sure. Yeah. Anytime. Um, okay. Our website's filmedincanada.net. The uh, email is filmedincanada at gmail.com. And um, here is again. Party on. <laughs> <laughs>